Hello, and welcome to Creepy Core and Folklore, the show about creatures, encounters, old tales, and myths. I'm your host, Iona Wayland, a dark fantasy author, mental health professional, and overall curious person. I want to join other spooky souls and hear about these unusual stories. All right, this week is a very special week. Um, I really like celebrating things, I guess, <laughs> because today um, is the 10th episode release. And it's a very special episode because, you know, as you may know, most podcasts don't make it past the seven episode mark. So I am, you know, forging ahead. Um, I wanted to make the 10th one just like kind of extra special. And I decided to deep dive into the origins of our blood sucking friends as we know them today, and how they took on different forms through the ages and across the world. To be honest, I was never super into vampires. But recently, I was curious about them. I know, like, you're probably used to me coming on here and usually talking about things that used to freak the hell out of me. Um, But vampires weren't one of those things. So this will be kind of a different take on it. And maybe with a bit of fresh eyes from my perspective. And it's not like I'm, you know, anti vampire or anything either. It's just that it wasn't something that I would constantly um, like, pretend I was on the playground. That was like a thing. Centaurs and werewolves, man. That was, that's what I did on the playground for much longer than I should have, um, than is socially acceptable, but whatever. Oh yeah. And velociraptors. How could I forget about me pretending to be a velociraptor? Oh, well, um, (laughs) uh, playground antics, you know, um, feel free to send me emails with what you used to pretend to be on the playground so that I don't feel so alone. That would be great. But I do remember this big surge. I feel like vampires are evergreen. I could be wrong in saying that um, because I know sometimes vampires have been overdone and then kind of as a society or at least in the US people kind of got sick of them. But every like 10 years they come back. (laughs) That's what I feel. I feel like they they never die. Um, That's foreshadowing in its most on the nose form I can think of. But this one, this deep dive is, I'm assuming, going to be very long. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a snack, as long as it doesn't have garlic in it, and let's dive in. So there was quite a few different um, resources I used for this. Um, one very heavily a bit later on when we look at the different types of vampires that are currently being told in folklore today across the world. And I'll make sure that I include all my resources in the show notes as usual so that you can take a look if you are more curious about them. But one of the resources said that it's arguable that the first vampire was actually prehistoric. It was on an Assyrian bowl. And I didn't know where Assyria was, but apparently it was the northern part of Mesopotamia which is Iraq um, and parts of Iran, Kuwait, Syria, and Turkey. So in that kind of 
a Syrian area, there were there was a bowl with um, depiction of a vampire. We can also see vampires in ancient Egypt. There was a warrior goddess Sekhmet um, that was in charge of like plagues and healing. I kind of like that she has that dichotomy, like the two ends of the spectrum there. So the sun god was her father and he sent her to punish disobedient humans by slaughtering them. And as she carried out her role, she got a taste of human blood and she became so bloodthirsty that she was actually going to wipe out all of human in the human race. And so what happened was that um, her dad and then I think helpers of him had to dye beer red to make her think that she was going to drink like a cask of blood and instead she got so drunk that she returned home um, to I guess where the gods live to sleep it off so you know if you ever want to get a vampire to go home you just get them drunk I think I think that's a good rule to follow Um, Then in ancient Greece, there were creatures that were talked about that would attack at night and drink people's blood while they slept. And this will show up a bit later um, and we'll go over it then. Um, And that was another way uh, that vampires or kind of like the origins of vampires were depicted in ancient times. Um, But now we can move from ancient times to Middle Aged Europe. So keep in mind that Middle Age Europe was rife with lots of disease and death. Um, And so there were very specific depictions of vampires or the undead told in this way that depicted kind of this rampant disease and plague that was scouring the earth. So there is this really incredible article that kind of separates folkloric vampires And what made them in particular, like, kind of stand out as different than, you know, modern day or contemporary vampire tellings. Um, Folkloric vampires emerged as being looking plump and having long fingernails. They often had a short beard and a red face. Lots of times their nose had fallen off. They had this layer of old skin that was shriveled on top of what the new skin or differently colored skin would be underneath. Um, I think it's interesting thinking about the skin with regards to like how they were thought of in another part of the world, but we'll get also get to that a bit later. Um, the only way to kill them is with a stake. Sound familiar? Um, they would... Uh, when you would kill them with a stake, they would actually bleed and make horrible sounds. A lot of people speculate that this particular depiction of how um, vampires were discussed in the Middle Ages in Europe is because it possibly came from exhumed bodies from shallow graves. So whether it was an accidental revelation of a grave or a determined exhumation of a grave if you think about what I just described it could be compared to a dead body this is already very disgusting (laughs) maybe I was naive 
And I thought this wouldn't freak me out. And I was like, I'm not afraid of vampires. They don't scare me. And I'm already getting like skeeved out. This is so uncomfortable to read about the whole body thing. I like hearing, I, I've noticed the more I do these and the more I research um, and also comparing to what I've been interested in in the past is I'm more into the stories behind the why Um and how like the etymology of stuff. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but whenever I'm looking things up, I tend to be drawn more towards that compared to like body horror. <laughs> and this is straight up body horror to me. Ugh. Okay, so getting back into exhumation. So when these bodies would be exhumed, they would often have blood in their mouth, they would be bloated, And sometimes there wasn't stiffness or rigor set in yet. So because of that, um, they would still bleed if you were to drive, like, let's say, you know, casually a stake through their heart, they would bleed. Um, And if they had rigor mortis set in, they most likely wouldn't have. Sometimes when the diseases were rampant, um, the these poorly buried bodies would be blamed for continuing on the disease or or be the original spreader of the disease rather than seen as like a victim of it or succumbing to it. And so when they were blamed, they were then staked and they'd make a quote painful sound end quote. And they thought that that validated their quote kill (laughs) um, of this body that they had dug up. Really, if what was the source of this painful sound, so to speak, is that it was a buildup of methane that was exiting the body from that wound. I'm noticing this in real time that I'm I'm really not into the uh, the body horror stuff. But you know what, apparently, I, I guess I am because I researched this. So I don't know what to think about myself right now. Um, But some of the uh, most prevalent diseases at the time, there were many, but some of the most common ones were tuberculosis, pellagra, pellagra, rabies, goiter, and porphyria. So porphyria specifically might be some inspiration for um, some lore behind vampires. Porphyria describes diseases that affect enzymes in the Heim biosynthetic pathway. So um, that is a fancy way of saying a buildup of certain chemicals related to red blood cell proteins. Heim is iron containing compounds and hemoglobin is a protein that carries oxygen um, non, the non-protein part of the hemoglobin can't convert the porphyrins into heme and all the tissue, all tissues have heme, but used most, they're used mostly in red blood cells in the liver and bone marrow. Um, and this could be the reason behind the disfigured skin, the eroding of gums that caused like that elongated those elongated teeth that I brought up and this could happen in someone that was still alive not just only foreseeable in someone who had passed 
I also noted that it happens more often in women than men, which had me a little confused because I'm so used to hearing about male vampires. Um, But the more digging I did, this made a bit more sense. The specific type of porphyria that was most linked to vampires or what people called vampires was actually congenital erythropoietic er, erythropoietic <laughs> erythropoietic poetic <laughs> it shouldn't say poetic <laughs> um porphyria or CEP it's also called gunther's disease and um this kind of as i read more you'll kind of see some things that still ring true today Um, Exposure to light causes blistering on the skin. Um, The urine, the teeth, and the bones are stained pink. It was said that some doctors or there were some like uh, medicine instructions that would say maybe if you drink blood that it would help your blood not have such a compounded effect and be able to transport what it's supposed to correctly. Um, Though that, like in hindsight, wouldn't actually work. Um, Another disease that was associated with vampires was rabies. And when I first read this, I thought that was odd because I always thought that it was um, rabies was considered like the basis of werewolves. Um, And I could still see that. Uh, But you know, this just means I need to do a deep dive on werewolves. When people would be afflicted with rabies, and this also happens to animals, unfortunately, um, there is there are spasms that they go through. They have a phobia of light and water, specifically like hydrophobia is the phobia of water, but they're not able to be around light or the light kind of hurts them and um, causes them to have these odd reactions to it. Same thing with the water, which if you think about it from holy water perspective or blessed water perspective and how that would cause people to like scurry away or hiss, that kind of holds true. People afflicted with rabies also makes like these hoarse throaty sounds um, that are sudden, um, most likely from the spasms. They would also clench their teeth really hard um, and retract their lips, like kind of baring their fangs, so to speak. Um, They also can't look at themselves in the mirror. So you can see where all of the things I listed are still kind of a part of contemporary vampire lore, uh, at least my familiarity with my brief familiarity with them in the United States. So we're going to fast forward from that plagued, plagued Middle Ages to Europe, Europe, specifically in the 15th century Romania. This is where it starts feeling really familiar that my little knowledge that I had about it before I did the deep dive, this rings true for what I knew. There was a ruler of Wallachia, Romania from 1456 to 1462, Vlad Dracula. I mean, basically the origin story here. He was considered Vlad the Impaler. Um, This also reminds me um, how lots of vampires will be, I'm so-and-so the so-and-so. Um, And so Vlad the Impaler is really interesting. Also, I don't know why I shortened it to Vlad. His name's Vladimir Dracula. But 
Vlad, I guess we're on a nickname basis right now. He was actually Vlad the Third. He was considered brutal. He, um, there are stories of how he impaled his enemies on the battlefield. There are rumors that he would, quote, dine amongst the carnage, end quote, and dip his bread in their blood. So some really graphic, you know, casual ruler stuff that we'd all do if we were in charge of a portion of land. (laughs) Don't you ever get the urge to dunk your bread in the blood of thine enemies? (laughs) So moving forward a little bit, again to the 18th and 19th century Europe in 1801 specifically. So basically the turn of the century. The earliest that's in recording of a vampire being in English literature is Robert Southey's Thalaba or Talaba, The Destroyer. It's considered an epic poem, I guess, um, where uh, the main character's late wife becomes a vampire after her recent death. They also like this was kind of how vampires became the antagonists or the antagonistic forces in gothic horror at the time. So of course, there's Lord Byron, and he wrote the Guar, <laughs> the Guar, in 1813. And then there's John Polidori. And he wrote The Vampire, but The Vampire spelled P-Y-R-E at the end in 1819. And it's funny, I just really wanted to to talk about that why in there, because I've noticed um, I'm not excluded from this. When writers want to be like really edgy, they'll just throw a random fucking why in there for no reason. <laughs> they'll replace like vowels with Y, usually I's, but you know. You can really switch it up, but it's it's good to know that like uh, authors were still you know had the flair for the theatrics even in eighteen nineteen. Of course, there was Bram Stoker, and this is uh, at least what I knew of English literature depicting vampires. Um, he wrote Dracula in eighteen ninety seven. Um, It was the first time that the vampire, though still an antagonistic force, was actually seductive, wealthy, mysterious, and was like sought after at times, or could groom or reel in followers, lovers, familiars, that kind of thing with um, his charms. Then there's Sheridan Le Fanu, and he wrote Carmilla or Carmilla, I'm not sure. Um, And that was in 1972. And that's when there was a sexy female vampire. I also believe that um, it was one of the first times where there was kind of uh, hints that Carmilla or Carmilla was um, like, possibly queer um, or I mean I'm not a fan of someone queer coding something like you know the evil person being queer coded I mean that's still done today Um, and that's just like basically that that just means that the villains I mean look at any Disney villain I'm just gonna whisper it um, that are kind of based off of stereotypical queer traits, I guess you could call them. 
it's interesting to see proof of that or potential proof of that back in 1972 with this like sexy female vampire who might be pan or bi or something. Sometimes people do like that this was a different take on it and it's kind of refreshing for them to see a sexy female vampire, um, not someone who's just like constantly bloodthirsty and um, trying to get revenge on their like husbands that survived them, like what happened in The Laba, The Destroyer back in 1801's epic poem. Now we can travel to the 20th century with Anne Rice. She uh, published Interview with the Vampire. Uh, He was described as being broody, very beautiful, like a beautiful man. Um, It also was an interesting take because um, that person... The main character was described as having super speed and like heightened senses. And a movie came out about it actually uh, starring Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. What a lineup. (laughs) I can't say I was expecting that one. I also believe that in the 20th century is when the Vampire Diaries was published, but I might have to fact check myself on that later. Because they started as a book series first. And I, yes, I did read those. I was into that. And then to the 21st century. How could we forget Stephanie Meyer's sparkling vampires that took the world by storm, the Twilight Saga? Um, I do remember reading that at the time. And um, I remember liking that my... Like when each book came out, I like that my friends were hyped up about like fantasy, basically, like I had always been. Um, and I read the books to be able to connect with them and stuff. And I I remember like thinking they were all right. Um, but I still have friends to this day that absolutely love those books. And I still have friends to this day that absolutely hate those books. And I can see reasons for both. Um, they are they're weird. Um, I'll say that they're very weird. And uh, sometimes the dialogue is, uh, is something. Um, but it's interesting how it kind of feels like the perfect storm where, um, you know, everyone was taken in by these like, sexy, glittery, super power, vampire, super old beings. Um, I have to say, I've always felt really weird about um, the like, someone looking much younger than they are, like someone being like 142 and going for like, a high school person, but that's when I'm, I start getting like skeeved out. Um, and I know it's fiction, so I need to not take things so seriously, but sometimes I'm like, um, I wasn't into it. Of, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm team Jacob. <laughs> um, then another one that just came out recently in 2021 is S.T. Gibson's Dowry of Blood. I have heard incredible things. I've heard that the prose are gorgeous. I heard I hear that there's like sur- survivor rep, um, that there's um, polyamory rep, and 
queer rep. I I just it, it seems like gorgeous to me. It's really like such a fresh take on it. And it's about like more survivorship and hope and like a budding romance um, between survivors than anything else. And I just I live for that shit. So I haven't read it yet, but it's on my TBR, my to be read list. Um, and I have it in audiobook format because I heard that's really good. I think it's told through letters if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. So I'm definitely going to have to read that for research purposes, of course. I mean, I say that and I'm doing the episode already, but just let me have this. Oh, talking about these books, you know what came to mind for me actually was Bonicula. I have a distinct memory of going to a scholastic book fair anyone who knows what I'm talking about you if you know you know um it was such a vibe we would get these little like pamphlet thingies and we would find the books that we wanted to get and our parents would give us money and we'd go to the like the book fair and we would buy those books so good um and one of the things that was really popular when I was in elementary school was Bonicula and it was this fresh take on like this bunny being a vampire. I remember being like torn in getting Bonicula or some other book and clearly I should have gotten Bonicula because I don't even remember what the other book was <laughs> that I decided against Bonicula to just like to read this other one. So you know what I might need to you know heal my inner child <laughs> one of my many inner children. <laughs> Um, and read Bonicula for funsies. I think that'd be fun. Just watch. I'll start a middle grade or uh, <laughs> or elementary chapter book grade um, book club or something. And having a book club at some point is something that I'm very interested in. So if anyone else would like to have a book club with me, um, please email me <laughs> or DM me or whatever, whatever you feel comfortable with, because I think that'd be really fun to read like both fiction and nonfiction. Like I know there's a bunch of folklore books I want to dive into too that I would love to discuss with people. So that would be really fun. I also, um, if I think about the vampire stuff my sister was into, it's it's funny me thinking about that time now because I distinctly remember her having this particular book and there was like a symbol where it looks like a smiley face, but it has like little fangs. Um, and like there's this guy in a hoodie and the hood's pulled way down. And I remember her getting really into that series, but I honest to goodness do not know what that series is. So if anyone has any ideas as to what that was, I'm going to have to like text her and ask her if she remembers, um, I'm sure she does what uh, series that was. So that'll be cool. There's of course, tons and tons of media, like visual media, like old films, um, like Nosferatu and all the way up to modern movies and TV shows. Um, I, I started for research purposes. Of course we started, my husband and I started watching what we do in the shadows. It's freaking hilarious. It's so good. I didn't think I'd like it as much as I do. The acting is brilliant. The camera work, which I thought I was totally over is I'm so into it. I'm so into the docu-series, kind of like the documentary, like follow you along in your life type of vlog, basically, is so good. Also, I, so this, this is when the vampires got me, for real. 
Um, I watched the first season of The Vampire Diaries in middle school with my sister. Um, and my sister used her iTunes money like the bloody saint she is and bought the first season of The Vampire Diaries right when it came out. Maybe I was in early high school. I can't remember if I was in eighth grade or ninth grade. Maybe it was the summer between. Um, but we and we snuck watched that shit and I remember thinking it was amazing. Does it hold up to this day? No. And what's really funny is that just yesterday, I mean, it won't be yesterday now. I'm I'm pre-recording this because um, I'm that kind of person. Um, and apparently I keep talking about how I'm pre-recording it and how I'm that type of person. So I guess I want to brag about it. I don't know. Um, but a uh, friendly space ninja on YouTube just did this super deep dive into um, the vampire diaries. I haven't watched the whole thing yet. I'm halfway through and he does an excellent job. Like he does such a good job um, going through why that particular um, series did so well. Um, how it was released uh, like kind of between when the um, Twilight movies were released, stuff like that. I, at the time, could we, my sister and I could only watch the first season. And I remember thinking, this is so edgy. And like, we're so like, we're able to handle this kind of mature content. So I think it's on Netflix now. Because like a year or two ago, I was like, I, <laughs> my poor husband, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is on here. I We need to watch it. I need to see if it holds up. Um, it kind of doesn't hold up, but it's kind of like really intense. Like I remember it, me feeling like really edgy and like things were like hardcore and stuff. And they kind of are like the deaths are crazy. The blood imagery is like kind of insane there are twists and turns that like make you wonder who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. And like, you can like, it, like I just, it, I thought it was like better writing than I thought it was, um, than I thought it would be. Um, and granted I could only like get through like the first two seasons or three seasons, um, of it actually now it's just the first two seasons. But it wasn't out of this world to be like, wow, that was intense. Like as an as a 13 year old or 14 year old, like, yeah, that was pretty damn intense. Oh, also, how could I forget Nosferatu? I mean, I believe that that's a play and like like a theatrical play, but also it was turned into a movie. So that's pretty cool. Also, the video games. Oh, my God. How could I forget about the video games? I lost days of my life to Skyrim, especially when it first came out. Eh, who am I kidding? Years, even the years later. Um, even though, admittedly, again, I'm apparently very consistent. I was more interested in the werewolf feature than the vampire feature, but you can do both. So, you know, it's not an either or type of situation. And then my brother actually told me about... Um, an interesting take on vampirism. I've never played it. I also hadn't heard of it until he told me this, but it's called Vampire the Masquerade. And I started looking into it um, by watching the Burger Craig on YouTube cover different kinds of like 
um, the clans within them and breaking down like the world building with regard to like social status of the vampires, or at least that's the section I'm in. So that would be cool to check out. Or if anyone um, has played a vampire game or has a favorite vampire movie or book, I would absolutely love to hear about that. So as you can see, there was lots of gender expression, sexual explorations, um, different ways of expressing class, wealth, privilege. Some were done in a pretty reductive way and then others were really refreshing and it was really cool to see how each author, writer, visual artist depicted these types of portrayals of vampires. So now we get to travel around the globe in search of vampires in their many forms. I heavily relied on this incredible listicle by Mina Elwell. They did an incredible job curating uh, vampires from all over the world. Uh, these are a few of them. And um, I also, of course, used Google to look up pronunciations because I already know, um, even after looking them up, that I still might struggle with them. So bear with me here. So looking at the Strigoi in Romania, we kind of covered Romania already, but the Strigoi in particular can be living or dead. Um, so that is a unique take. I mean, there are lots of unique takes. And when I say unique, I mean unique to the Western world. So I thought that was pretty cool that they could be living or dead. They're typically born with tails and they can turn invisible. A sign that they might be around is if your cow isn't producing milk or if your livestock is sterile or if there's a large spread of disease in general. So this is where garlic comes into play. Um, apparently garlic is the Strigoi's weakness. Um, garlic in reality can exacerbate people with porphy porphyria like we talked about before and it can exacerbate their symptoms because of their high sulfur content. This could be why in particular that this is useful for warding against living quote living Strigoi. For the dead Strigoi however they are corpses that never decompose. They are considered to have two souls. And so when they died, there only one of those souls leaves the body. Whereas the remaining soul stays in this corpse that is only partially decomposed and doesn't decompose past that point that haunts their still living relatives. And this honestly reminds me of Thalaba the Destroyer since her background was related to recent widower and his deceased wife comes back to try to kill him. The next one resides in Greece and they are called the Vrekolakas. And these are people who were excommunicated from the church, but who had passed away. So it was said that they couldn't decompose, but they longed to be able to die. I think this is a very fascinating concept and I think I'm going to use it in a future book, honestly, because this like, oh, I am not only excommunicated from my religion, but now I'm unable to pass on in the natural way I should. It, it a little bit reminds me of Tuck Everlasting. That's a total throwback book. I remember thinking that was like the coolest book I'd ever read in like elementary school. 
but the Breakolakas stories then became more sinister. So instead of using the uh, inability to decompose and fully, quote, die um, from being excommunicated from the church, not only was that, but they couldn't decompose because there was an improper burial ritual used and or they were buried in unconsecrated grounds. In the 1600s, Vrekolakas then were lumped in with more of the werewolf slash undead lore, but this is where the Vrekolakas were drinking the blood and the stories of them that were kind of this mishmash of other folklore had depictions of the Vrekolakas uh, consuming blood. Now to Albania, where the Striga live. They apparently look like a normal woman, whatever that means. Um, But they would drink victims' blood. Um, So when the victim's blood has been drained, they shrivel and die. Like a raisin person or a mummy, I guess, maybe. And the antidote is actually for, for them to have Striga saliva. So even if they're dead, you can actually bring the victim back to life if it's done before sunset. Like if they consume or have the saliva before sunset. To ward off a striga, after draining the victim, they will vomit up the blood, which is like very owl-esque to me or bird-like in a way for that regurgitation thing. And you're supposed to collect some of the vomited blood on a silver coin, and it could protect the person who has it on their person. So this is pretty intense to me, but you can actually trap a striga in the church. So what you do is you collect the bones of the, quote, last pig you ate at a carnival, end quote. I don't know if it's like maybe like a celebratory or a feast type pig, but you take the bones and you create a sign of the cross out of bones while she's in the church on Easter Sunday and like specifically. And she can only escape if the person who made it carries her out of the church. So she can't actually walk out of her own volition and it has to be the person that trapped her who does it. This makes me really curious to potentially look into more of how they came up with this particular trap and then also how they know the boundaries of this trap. Now we go to the Caribbean, which is where my uh, family is from. There's something called the Lugaru, which I have actually never heard of these. I know before I've talked about like Anansi and how I used to hear stories about Anansi the Spider-Man um, in the very first episode I talk about it. But in this particular case, um, I have never heard of these creatures before. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. And they're also kind of linked to werewolves. Um, it's really interesting how much of an overlap there is. Like, I feel like I should make a Venn diagram um, when I do a deep dive episode on werewolves um, to see where werewolves and vampires intersect in their folkloric regions and tellings. So again, these apparently look like a quote, ordinary woman. I still don't know what that means, but we'll go with it. Then they would shed their skin like a snake. And that kind of reminds me of the porphyria with the skin issues, like maybe having skin under the like decomposing or or peeling skin. Um, but who knows? You know, there 
if these regions share that kind of skin shedding because of the animals that are in creatures that are in their um, outside world, or if it's because these tellings actually traveled. Oral history is so fascinating to me. There seemed to just be like a lot of lore around skin shedding that I could get into. So hell, I might as well at some point. She then can fly through the air with flames shooting out of her armpits and all orifices. So this girl's on fire. Um, It's honestly horrifying and kind of the first time like a bat or something flying was brought up thus far in this research. Um, Because I I always thought they were kind of put together with bats and the Lugaroo is the first time I've heard of them being able to fly. I also think it's interesting because there's a future episode I'm going to do about Caribbean lore um, specifically. And so I can't wait to see like if this kind of overlaps with it with another one that's coming to mind. So the Lugaru then can transform into something smaller to fit through the cracks so she can sneak in and drink a person's blood. Their weakness is compulsive counting. So two things come to mind. One, this is kind of demonizing compulsions or sensationalizing what like certain OCD, like in a particular types of OCD might look like. So that's just my therapist brain turning on and being like, let's not, you know, sensationalize or demonize these things. If that was the case. Another thing that comes to mind is that sounds a lot like the haint like not haunts, they're called haints, and they're from Appalachian folklore. So makes me wonder um, if maybe that the whole compulsive counting thing, and this comes up later um, with other places. So I'm not sure like how these all intersect. I'm very curious about the etymology of all these things. So what people would do is they'd leave piles of sand outside of their door so that the Lugaru would have to stop and count every grain of sand. And then they'd have to put on their normal woman skin by morning. The next one are the drawer from Scandinavia. And I'm very familiar with drawer because they're running amok in Skyrim. Like I brought up that video game I brought up earlier they're just rampant. There's a serious drawer problem in that game. So these are the undead, but they have the ability to heal their wounds and they can also spread their undeadness to humans. Um, These were people that were apparently aggressive or violent people in life. They would then, when they passed on, become a drawer in death. So the way they looked was their bodies became heavier, their skin turns dark blue, but they don't decay. This also a little bit sounds like an ice walker um, from certain types of books, uh, aka Game of Thrones. Um, They hunt in winter when it's cold and dark, and they hunt livestock and humans. They tend to curse people and they can just sink in and out of the ground, which is just like a really compelling mental image to see them do that. It's like really gross. Um, you have to defeat the drawer by decapitating them and burning them. Now let's travel to the Celtic region where there's the Derg. And 
the drar may be influenced by Celtic legends or vice versa, but basically they're undead, they're pale, they but they look like beautiful women <laughs> and they wander graveyards at night. Um, they use their beauty to lure men. Of course, of course, this is the only way to lure men um, into the graveyard and then they kiss them. And then men are just like absolutely entranced, apparently. Um, and when she kisses him, she bites his lip and drains the blood from his mouth. And here's how to stop them. You're supposed to find where they're buried and you put cairn on top, which I believe is like a pile of rocks. At least that's, those are the cairns that I know of on like hiking trails and stuff. You look for those piles of rocks. But actually, let me double check that. Yeah, it looks like I was right. Although I'm looking at images of cairns right now. I'm used to seeing just like a little pile. You can make them kind of big and they're they're balanced in a particular way, but they are a mound of rough stones built as a memorial or landmark, typically on a hilltop or skyline. So that part I didn't know. But apparently if you are able to build like put these rocks in a particular way over where they're buried, where their body is buried, then it traps her in the grave. So next up is the Ivory Coast. And there there are the Asan Bansam or Asan Bonsam. Um, they have like a human body with iron hooks for hands and feet. What they do is they wait in trees. And when there's a person under them, um, they grapple down hook them by like hook them with their hooks and drag the victim up the tree. Um, it bites and drinks their blood. It doesn't say where on the body they do that. Um, but then it leaves the woods at night and sneaks into houses if no one was unfortunate to walk under them. So they actually bite the per the sleeping person's thumb and drains enough of their blood to survive. Um, it doesn't say like you can kill them or trap them or anything like that, but to avoid them, apparently if you sacrifice, if you sacrifice goats and leave blood on the ground for the Asan Bansam to drink, they, their hunger will be satiated and they won't come to drink your blood. Next is the Siwalteco, which is in Mexico. Apparently the mother earth goddess, Siocuatl, goddess of midwives and women who died while giving birth was kind of the basis behind the Sihuatik. But there was a destructive side called the Sihuatetko. And these were considered reproductive demons. So virgins who died or women who died during childbirth would then turn into these vampire vampiric beings so they would wait at crossroads to seduce men i mean what the heck i mean i i don't know why there's all these stories that are so insulting um they make these traumatized women out to be monsters and they make men out to be like super stupid <laughs> it's like insulting to everyone um, but apparently they will also attack infants, pregnant women, and women who have had children, as well as children. Um, actually, now that I'm talking about it, it kind of reminds me of La Llorona. So it's possible that like this kind of folklore was the root behind 
La Llorona. So the next one is in China. It's considered the Jiangxi, which is also the Chinese hopping. I almost said spider. Oh my gosh. Chinese, Chinese hopping vampire. I guess they're kind of like spiders. Um, these are not undead humans, but it does follow the two souls in one body thing like the dr- dead Strigoi. The, the multiple souls um, in one body is something that's like not uncommon to think about unrelated to folklore or anything. It can also be in religions and societal norms, things like that. So some believe that one of the souls becomes empowered by malevolence and that be- makes the person become that vampire, especially in the moonlight. So some Jiangxi are just demonic spirits that have taken advantage of a human corpse and can control it. So there's a couple different beliefs behind it, but they do all look similar. They have long claws, red eyes, long pale hairs, um, they, these hairs are white or pale green um, that was maybe born from seeing like in the real world mold on the graves because that kind of does sound like lichen or like a type of fungus with their hyphae, stuff like that. They're said to have toxic breath. Um, they can fly or jump really, really high and some have super strength. Their weaknesses are typically like if they see a pile of small things, they are compelled to count it, just kind of like the pile of sand for the Lugaru. So a way to another way to trap them is people will set up a um, they'll they'll set up that counting kind of trick, and when they're counting, they will trap them inside a circle of rice. This also reminds me a lot of like a demon, like demon hunting, where the person will say that if they have a circle of like blessed water or salt to make a circle around the demonic entity, they can be slowed down by beheading or by wooden stake, but ultimately it's burning them that finally kills them. Next is from the Seminole tribe. So the Seminole tribe was originally ran from the east coast of the U.S. to Oklahoma. These are called the Stikini. It also can be called the Stigini and the Ishtikini. They look like humans, a normal human, again, whatever the heck that looks like, until nightfall. And then they go to a place in the woods and vomit up all of their internal organs. So this this also, again, reminds me of birds regurgitating things or an owl pellet. And I'm not too far off because they take the shape of an owl and fly at night. They suck out victims' hearts through their mouths and they go to the place where they threw up their organs, and swallow them again to take shape of a human once more. How horrifying is this? Like, seriously, how horrifying is it? Like, it's like, oh, I'm just going to suck your heart right out of you. That is scarier to me than sucking out blood. So to kill them, you actually have to find their organs and wait for them to return. And then you kill them with this special, these special arrows that are prepared with herbs and owl feathers. Next, we travel to New Guinea, and we can find the Forso or the Furso. 
uh, they are completely invisible. They have a different take. They actually feed off of emotions, life energy, and sexual energy. And when someone is being drained by them, you can apparently tell if they are feeling um, in like more in a depressed or saddened stupor or state, as well as having and or having bad luck. So it kind of reminds me of those zombies from Chinese folklore where they they drain the chi from people. So I thought that was interesting that there was like this Forso energy vampire type look. They don't travel far from their graves. So I guess they're they were once like humans um, and they attack anyone who gets too close to their graves. Um, you can keep them away by using prayers, but only if the Forso was religious when they were alive. So honestly, like to me, and this is this is where my therapeutic brain just turns on even for folkloric entities. <laughs> um, it makes me feel like they are just like looking for attention. So like, and I think there, there was a quote in the particular thing that it, I think the author of this listicle said that they're a quote, lovely soul looking for attention, end quote. So if you give them attention, they may not attack. You can also find their grave and remove the bones if you aren't attacked by them. And if you take those bones home and give them care, then it helps them rest. And I just think that's so sweet. I don't know. Maybe I'm like, I'm swooning over taking care of corpse bones. (laughs) I just think it's very kind to tend to the graves of those who have passed as well. Next, we go to Russia and Poland. And this is where we can find the vampires. And so these also look like humans, but they have stingers under their tongues. I swear I've seen something like this. I actually feel like I've seen something similar to this. So they actually can hunt during the day. So the stinger dazes the victims. I'm not sure if they kiss them. It's coming to mind that they kiss like their victims, but maybe they don't. Maybe they can gleek. I'm not sure. But then they drain them of their blood to kill them. You have to burn them to death to the point of explosion. (laughs) And this is so gross because they actually explode into maggots, rats, and insects. However, the trick is if even one creature lives and escapes, they can live again and seek revenge on the person that tried to explode them, I guess. So how crazy would that be where like you exploded this evil entity or this like predatory entity and it exploded into maggots, rats, and insects? How can you possibly kill all of them? I guess that's kind of the point is they're kind of like undead and living, like basically able to live on and live on for so long. Next, we can travel to Brazil, and there's the Asema. They look like an elderly person. At night, they turn into a glowing orb. These glowing orbs can be pale blue, red, aquamarine, and dark blue. They also then shed, when to turn into this orb, they shed their human skin like the Lugaru and Stikini. 
So they hunt by flying through the air and looking for sleeping humans. Then they take their human form and drink their blood, or they can stay as a glowing glowing orb to drain their energy like the Forso. The pale blue orbs mean that they drain energy over time, whereas the red, dark blue and aquamarine kill on the first night by draining them of blood. In order to stop the asema or the asemas, you have to eat garlic to make your blood taste bad and leave piles of seeds to distract them. And (laughs) um, so I guess that keeps them away, but you have to burn the human skin. Um, I felt very odd writing that sentence, burn the human skin. It's the only way. Um, But so you basically have to catch them when they've shed and remained as an orb. You have to trap them by having them do the counting thing with the seeds. And then you have to burn them. And it's like, hopefully they decide not to drain you of your energy. But I guess you can protect yourself by making yourself not taste good by eating garlic. The last vampiric entity that I'm going to cover today is in Southeast Asia region. This one is the scariest one, in my opinion. It's called the Penangalan. And this, okay, this is, this is nuts. The visual is so metal, I I can't even handle it. So how these Penangalans are made is there is a magical agreement between a person, of course, usually a woman, oh my goodness, to become more beautiful, but they have to fulfill a promise. This human broke that agreement. And so they then died. After they died, they hungered for newborn babies' blood. Gross. So, so this, this one has some serious lore going on. During the day, they look like women who often take on the role of a midwife to get close to possible victims. And at night, their head flies off their body and it takes all their organs and spinal cord and stuff like that with them. And so they have like a motionless and gutless body that they leave behind. They then travel around as just a head and used and use the attached guts to move around like tentacles. Horrifying. I also think it's really interesting that they included the fact that this um or this like broken promise um ex beautiful person um is kind of described as like they want something from a vulnerable population and so they are willing to disguise themselves in something that lets them be close to victims and be unsuspected because that does happen um that kind of predatory nature does happen in humans and i think that that's really interesting that in the southeast asia region that they took that bit of like behavior from like that people do and they put it into this very predatory entity. So here's how to kill a Penangalan. You have to determine 
who is a penangalan first. So ways to tell is like they'll smell like vinegar because they soak their entrails in vinegar or they soak them in like a preservative of some sort before returning to the body. So that's how like you're working within midwifery or if you are in hospital or um, wherever this per- daycare, I don't know, wherever this person would be, they would smell like vinegar. They would have a vinegary smell. And that was your hint that they're actually a vampire. <laughs> um, so what you do is you kind of like in this alternative universe, you would follow this evil entity and wait until they're he- they go wherever it is that they go, whether it's their house or the woods or like a secret space and you wait until the head pops off and they like slip slop their way out. I don't know. (laughs) And they like use their tentacles to like their intestinal tentacles to like move away from the body. And while they're out on the hunt, you fill that empty shell of a body and you stuff it full of glass shards. So, oh, this is is making me so uncomfortable. So that once it returns and tries to go back into their like cocoon disguise, it will be lacerated to death and destroyed. So that one was the craziest to me. I'd never heard of this thing. This one grossed me out the absolute most. It, it was just horrific to me to talk about that one. So together, we've seen so many kinds of blood and energy sucking vampires. It spanned from prehistoria across the globe and is still unliving its best life to this very day. Um, so thank you for listening to this deep dive for this very special episode number 10. And we'll get real spooky real soon. Thanks to all you spooky souls out there for listening to Creepycore and Folklore. Follow on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok if you're looking for more uncanny content. If you have your own tales to tell, you can email Creepycore and Folklore at gmail.com. If you like this, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts or tell a friend who might enjoy these stories to spread the word. If you're interested in dark fantasy, check out my Hollowverse series. Ashes is available now in paperback and ebook on Amazon and audiobook on Audible, and the sequel is underway. I'm Iona Wayland, and I'll see you next time.